chapter 1. As I said, we're beginning a journey uh, through the Psalter. This, uh, the Psalter, the Psalms, are like Israel's greatest hits. <laughs> uh, this was their songbook, and it is our songbook we have inherited. It was written uh, from between 1410 B.C., Psalm 90, the first psalm, to 450 B.C., probably Psalm 126. And uh, so over a thousand-year period, this book has, uh, was constructed and written. Um, the uh, arrangement isn't necessarily inspired, but it was compiled uh, by the Jews in the order that we have it. And really the focus of the book of Psalms is worship to God for all of his perfections. They teach us how to worship God in all times and seasons. It is a response, we might say, to the person and work of God. Um, we might call it praise and prayer for the perfections of God. One of my seminary professors, Keith Essex, he said this about the book of Psalms. He, he described it as the righteous pray to and praise Yahweh as they await the coming of God's kingdom. The righteous pray to and praise Yahweh as they await the coming of God's kingdom. There's a commentary in the Psalms by a man named Grogan, and he has a good title, I think, to the book, summarizing the contents. He calls it Prayer, Praise, and Prophecy. Prayer, praise, and prophecy, because it's, it's prayers uh, of the saints uh, expressing their heart to God. It is praise to God in worship, and it is also filled with prophecy about the first coming of the Messiah, as well as his second coming and his long-awaited kingdom. It is the divine hymn book and prayer book. It is a great guide for us in our prayers and teaching us how to pray. It teaches us how to live a life of worship at all times and seasons. In fact, the Psalter is so helpful and has been such a, a place of refuge for Christians for all the ages because it speaks to virtually every time and season that we would find ourselves in life. Are you joyful? There's a psalm for that. Are you downcast? There's a psalm for that. Are you anxious? There's a psalm for that, right? The psalms address, and the majority of the psalms are actually lament psalms. And they actually teach us something about life in this world, that there is quite a bit of cause for lament. And so the Psalter gives us words to express what we may not have otherwise been able to express ourselves. Martin Luther called the psalms a mini-Bible. There are five books in the psalms. Uh, there are in fact, if you look at Psalm 1, it's likely in your, in your Bible that just before Psalm 1, it says book 1. So there's five books within the Psalter, maybe to match the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's possible. The five books run from ch uh, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 41. Those are primarily written by David. Then you have verse, uh, chapters 42 to 72 is book 2 written by David and the sons of Korah. And then book three is Psalm 73 to 89, mainly Asaph writing. 
chapters 90 to 106 are book four, and these are anonymous psalms mostly. And then 107 to 150 is the book five, and it's David and anonymous other uh, authors. Each of the five books ends in virtually the same way. You can go check it later. So you go, you know, you go to Psalm uh, 41 at the end of that. You go to Psalm 72. You go to Psalm 89 uh, at the end. You go to Psalm 106 at the end and even the end of 150. And they all end with really a statement saying, blessed be Yahweh. Blessed be Yahweh. It's praise Yahweh. And so all of the books end the same way. As we said, 126 is probably the last psalm to be written. Psalm 90, the first psalm, it's written by Moses. And yet the arrangement is specific. It is helpful and constructive for us. And we turn our attention to the first psalm, Psalm 1, the first in the arrangement of the psalms. So let's read Psalm 1 together. Follow along as I read it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. A few years back, a TV show uh, was introduced uh, called You vs. Wild. Uh, Bear Grylls is uh, a TV uh, uh, host that he, he goes into, the, into nature, into these uh, harsh climates, and he survives by himself and a camera crew of guys. Uh, and, uh, and he survives, and he shows you how to survive in these, in these uh, rough climates. And so he, he, his old show is uh, Man vs. Wild. And then they later came up with this other concept because they just got to make more TV uh, called You Versus Wild. So this allowed you to now watch Bear Grylls surviving in these different environments, but you got to choose what he did next. And so he would come up to, you know, uh, an option of where to go. So there would be this like big cliff on one side or, or he could go and, and it was just this jagged cliff and he could go up that way or he could go through this river and it was, you know, infested with, you know, crocodiles or something. And, he, and he's like, okay. You know, I can't do a good Australian accent or whatever, but he, and, he, and he would describe the two, and then he would say, you decide, you decide. And, uh, and so then on your remote, you had to have a smart TV, sorry, uh, but you had to have a smart TV, and then it would let you decide, and, and you could like toggle between the two, and you could go like, oh, you know, do the, do the river, or you go to the other one, and no, no, do the, do the rock face. And, and so you'd click, and then it would, you know, go to the part that they filmed, because they filmed both, obviously, <laughs> and, uh, and you could watch him do that part, and other times it was, you know, oh, should I eat this, you know, nasty grub, or these termites, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, man, I want to see him eat the grub, you know, and, uh, and, and all these different things are, you know, should I, should I get cross this crevasse with, uh, with, with a vine and swing across, or should I walk over this, this dead uh, tree that's fallen, and you'd have to choose, and 
every once in a while you would choose wrong because he would eat some, he would eat the grub and, and then he would be like, a few minutes later in the show, he'd be like, I'm not feeling really good. And he would call help and they would, you know, medevac him out. And so it was like game over. And you're like, what? So, but then of course you could restart the episode and rewatch it and then you would choose differently. And so you could watch the episode multiple times and choose different things and watch him do it and see, see what happened. It was kind of like a, a TV show version of Choose Your Own Adventure. And it was great because you didn't have to eat any of this stuff. You didn't have to fight with a crocodile or anything. You just got to watch him do it. And that is the way that wisdom literature often functions in the Bible. What it will do is it will say, here's two paths. You go this way or you go that way. Let me tell you a little about this way, and it'll tell you a little about that way. And let me tell you about this way, and it'll tell you about that way. And, and then you kind of get to watch it play out in both, and then you say, you decide. <laughs> you get to decide then which way you're going to go, the path that you're going to take. And that's often the case. You think of Solomon in, in Proverbs doing that so often with his son. And here in the first psalm, uh, the, the first book of the, the writings in the Hebrew Old Testament, you have a psalm that introduces us to two ways, two paths that you can take, and describes both of them in picturesque ways, and really then implores us to, to take the way of the blessed, of the righteous person. And that's what it's seeking to do. It's presenting us with two paths. You are on one of these two paths. Everyone is living on one of these two. He doesn't want to just inform you, though, of these two paths. He wants you to implore you to choose the right path. In fact, he doesn't actually give any commands in this psalm. It, there's no commands of, you know, get on the path. Or, it's simply a description of these two people. It's a, it's a psalm of contrasts. A contrast with the righteous and the wicked, with the, the blessed and the one who will, be, who will perish. He wants you to be able to identify which path you are on and to, be account and to create a longing to be counted among the righteous and among the blessed. And the message of Psalm 1 is this. There are only two kinds of people, two ways to live, and only two destinies for all this is a fitting message for the first psalm. But as I said earlier, Psalm 1 isn't the first psalm if you're thinking chronologically. Psalm 90 was written first. So why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? Why put this here? Actually, Psalms 1 and 2 are connected together. They serve as the introduction to the Psalter. If you'll notice in Psalm 1-1, it says, Blessed is the man. And then go to the end of Psalm 2. That last phrase says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's known as an inclusio, or it's another word of saying like an envelope, uh, brackets, bookends. It's a way that Hebrew writers indicate to you a section. And so here we have in the Psalter two psalms that are linked together. They are to be taken together. And so next week we hope to look, Lord willing, at Psalm 2. One of my favorite psalms. Uh, but in Psalm 1, we are introduced to the blessed and the perishing. And in Psalm 2, we're introduced to the Messiah, whom all must submit to and take refuge in. 
Psalm 1 and 2 serve then as the porch of the Psalms, the driveway to the Psalms, the gateway to the Psalms, the pillars of the Psalms, and the guardians of the Psalms. You have to pass through these two to get into the Psalter. And so this is a fitting introduction. The two ways laid out for you. The themes of the righteous and the wicked are introduced in Psalm 1 and found throughout the Psalms. It's also similar to Jesus' teaching of the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road leading to life in Matthew 7. In fact, much of the Sermon on the Mount draws its content from Psalm 1. And so the question inherent in chapter is, are you the perishing? Are you among the righteous or are you among the wicked? And how can you tell? I mean, you should want to know the answer to this question. And so that's why it's first. That's why it comes first. And so that's what we want to look at. These Psalms are evangelistic. They call out to us as we enter this book. I like what the Reformation Study Bible says. It says, Psalm 1 provides the purpose of the book of Psalms as a manual for living the blessed life. Well, Psalm 2 provides the overall message of the book in terms of God's reign through his messianic king. We learn from Acts 4, 25 and 26, that David is the author of Psalm 2. And uh, even though it doesn't tell us in Psalm 2 who wrote it, it's, a, it's about a king of Israel, and so written by a king of Israel. And so it's possible David wrote Psalm 1 as well because of the close connection that these two have, but we're not absolutely certain about that. Now, as we look at this psalm, it breaks into three sections of contrast. Verses 1 and 2 go together, verses 3 and 4 go together, and 5 and 6 go together. There's a lot of parallelism in the psalm, which is characteristic of Hebrew poetry. What I want us to look at is the blessed person. We're introduced to this person, this, the blessed person, the happy person the contented person, the person who's received the blessing of God. And, and that's what says, blessed is the man. And then it's going to describe him. So uh, although this passage speaks about the, the righteous and the wicked, I want to look at it with a focus upon the blessed or the happy. And so as we look at this, we'll look at these three sections in three points, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6. We'll see the preoccupation of the happy or the blessed, which is scripture, the picture of the happy, which is stability, and then the portion of the happy, which is salvation. Let's consider first the preoccupation of the blessed man or the happy man, which is scripture. Look again at verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Blessed. This is how the Psalter begins. It is to be supremely happy or fulfilled, to be overflowing with joy and full of contentment, a satisfaction and a happiness in the Lord. One writer said, this psalm begins where all of us hope to end. With a blessedness over our life. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone seeks for happiness. 
yes, in different ways, but all with the same intent and motive to be happy. The psalm begins with a beatitude, very much like our Lord's greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, started with a beatitude, blessed. In fact, many beatitudes, as Jesus describes the one who is to inherit salvation. And just as a point of clarification, Psalm 1 isn't saying do these things to be saved, nor is Jesus saying do these things to be saved, but he's describing, Jesus is describing the qualities of those who are to inherit salvation, those who are saved, as well as Psalm 1 describing for us the one who is righteous, declared righteous by God, and who is the happy person. So, here we have this happy person, this blessed person, not limited to their circumstances, but one that comes from heaven. You could say that this person is favored by God and fulfilled in God. Favored by God and fulfilled in God. I wonder if that describes you. Are you favored by God? Are you fulfilled in God? Well, what is it that makes this person blessed and happy? Verse 1 describes negatively what this person rejects, and therefore part of the reason for his blessedness. Verse 2 describes positively what this person rejoices in. And so let's look at those. Consider first what the happy person rejects. Verse 1. What we see is a number of triplets in verse 1. Walks, stands, sits. Counsel, way, seat. Wicked, sinners, scoffers. Here's this parallelism here. Saying similar things in a variety of ways. And the descriptions, you'll notice, get more severe. They spiral uh, downward in the descriptions. First, the happy person rejects worldly advice. Says he who walks n- not in the counsel of the wicked. Walk refers to decisions that he makes, the direction he pursues. What is it that he avoids? Well, the counsel of the wicked. He rejects worldly thinking and values. One commentator said he refuses the worldview that places man at the center of the universe and entices him to live by his own standards of morality and pursuits of pleasure. This person rejects a worldview opposed to God. Their life is guided instead by God's instruction rather than the instruction and advice of the world. Now the wicked... There's a number of wicked uh, in the Psalms, but the wicked here simply refers to those who are not believers, and thus, and therefore, they are guilty before God. They're not in covenant with God. They're not in a right relationship with Him, and therefore, they are wicked. This person doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, before you clear yourself of this one, I mean, consider the ways that we uh, may be tempted to imbibe worldly advice and counsel. It's not just like the people you hang out with, but it's also the books that you read. It's also the music that you listen to. And it's also the shows that you watch, the entertainment you take in. 
that just as much as spending time with uh, someone who's an unbeliever and pushing their views on you uh, is just as uh, effective as communicating the advice of the world. As Christians, we are concerned about what we take in. Uh, even books and what we read, the worldviews that they portray, the things that they create in us, the desires that they might elicit in us in books that may not be godly and honoring to the Lord, or the worldviews that they portray and glorify, or shows that we watch in the, 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 the messaging that comes at us. One of the most subtle ways is through commercials and advertisement. Is you're waiting for your show to come back on, and there's these little worldview, you know, messages coming at you in the, in the shaped and packaged in the form of some product that it's appealing to you in some way. And so, what kind of advice are these mediums providing for you? Here's what the righteous, the blessed person, the happy person is known by. They they reject that counsel. They reject that advice. They see it for what it is. Secondly, the righteous rejects worldly actions. Not just worldly advice, but worldly actions. It says he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. So now you can see it's, it's progressing. Not, not only walking in the counsel, but now it's standing in the way. Stand refers to commitments that a person makes to various causes. Deals with one's practice, one's behavior. And so here the righteous resist the invitation to participate in sinful actions and, and living, lifestyle. Here sinners refers to those who are either ignorantly or intentionally failing to obey God. The righteous person longs to please God above all else. The righteous fears displeasing God by sinful behavior. Sin is a way of... of if you think of this as the blessed person, the happy person, sin is a way of sapping spiritual vitality and just sucking it away and joy. David wrote uh, in Psalm 32, 3 about his sin. He says, when I kept silent, means about his sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I mean, he could feel it, like physically. He was affected by unconfessed sin in his life. And so here, is an indication this is a way of sapping true vitality and joy. Standing in the way of sinners. Third, the righteous person refuses worldly attitudes. Not only advice, actions, but now attitudes. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So now he's sitting. Sounds a lot like Lot in Genesis, right? Pitches his tent outside of Sodom. Then he moves into the city. And then he's a leader in the city. He's at the gate making decisions. And that's kind of a picture of this person scoffer is not your average sinner. They are one who ridicules the righteous and their God. This is the person who mocks others who seek to follow God and, and their beliefs. And sit refers to a settled attitude of the heart. Come to this conclusion and therefore it can manifest itself in a ridiculing of others who would hold such views. And so we see here the, the way that the, the happy man, the blessed man, is seen negatively. That they, they reject worldly advice. They reject worldly actions. They reject worldly attitudes. This person is known for 
what they don't do. And we should be known for what we don't do uh, because we have a different worldview and a different ethic and a different outlook on the world. But not only is the happy man known for what they refuse, but also for what they rejoice in. And so verse 2 has a contrast, but it's not just that he refuses these things, but here's why he refuses these things. Here's why he doesn't go in this way. Because his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This person delights in God's word. And so this person, the blessed person, we see what they rejoice in, not only what they reject. It's the law of Yahweh. The word law uh, is the word Torah. And it can refer to the first five books of Moses, uh, but also came to be used more generally of God's instructions. Uh, and so likely, this is a term for God's instructions in a general sense, which would include what's going to be in the Psalms, the five books of Psalms, and of course, the rest of the scriptures that we now possess. The instruction and revelation of God. For the psalmist, we see elsewhere in the Psalms, the God's revelation, the scriptures, are his greatest possession and his greatest pleasure. See that in Psalm 19, verse 7, which extols the word of God. Another passage, the longest chapter in the Bible, is about what? The Bible. <laughs> the scriptures, Psalm 119, we are told that uh, this one who cherishes God's word more than food, verse 103, sleep, verse 55, wealth, verse 14, and friends, verse 23. Just hunger for the word. In a way, this is an evidence of the new birth in someone's life. That they have a longing for the scriptures. A desire to know the scriptures. Because they want to know God. They want to know him. And so often I'll hear, uh, when I ask someone how the Lord has saved them, how he's worked in their lives, uh, and, and without even prompting, often what I'll hear is uh, them talk about the way they thought about the Bible. The, what they did with the Bible and how that changed. That before, there, there wasn't much interaction with the Bible. But then when God opened their eyes to their need for him and his glory and their sin, they then were captivated by the scriptures. And then that's not to say that everyone uh, finds it easy to read the Bible. Uh, anything worth doing is difficult <laughs> and takes time and effort. And so reading the Bible is challenging at times, but there is this longing in the believer to have the word because we want the God of the word. The true believer longs for the word in their life. A person will not consistently spend time meditating on scripture unless he or she has a desire to do so. If you don't love the word of God and you rarely read it without the insistence from others, it may indicate, may, that you're not one of the blessed, that you're not on that path. Because God changes our hearts. Think about it like this. God is called the blessed God. In, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, and 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, he's the blessed God. He's the happy God. This is telling us something about the nature of God, which is instructive for us. Your view of God is going to shape a lot in your life, whether you realize it or not. If you view God as 
the happy God, the blessed God, and that by his very nature, that's who he is, and then he flows. What do you think the kind of person who gets to know this God is going to become like? You know, we become like what we worship. You know, if you worship an idol, you become like your idols. If you worship the, the blessed God, what do you think you become like? You become blessed, right? You become happy yourself because you're coming to know this triune blessedness from all eternity that you now are being included in. And so, okay, follow this logic. Okay, the blessed God, forever blessed, triune God. When you come to know this God in a right way, you become blessed. So you think if you read the word of God, which is written by the spirit of God to reveal God to us, when you study the scriptures, what do you think will be said of you? What do you think will come about? Blessedness. You will be blessed. Here's the blessed God revealing himself in the scriptures. Therefore, when we study the scriptures, we ourselves are known as the blessed, the blessed ones, because we've come to know this God. Look at this next phrase. On his law, he meditates day and night. If you give yourself to know the blessed God by reading and meditating, the word that reveals him, you will be a blessed person. A righteous person, this happy person, dwells in the word constantly. And this intense delight in the word of God will rarely come in our lives from infrequent dwelling on the word. Now, what is this idea of meditation? What is meditation? In fact, it's used in chapter 2, uh, verse um, one, when it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They're meditating, they're, they're musing, they're planning it out, what they're going to do. Different sense there, but you can get a sense of part of the idea there, this thoughtfulness of the word. Now, here's where I watched a video. Um, it wasn't a complete waste of, you know, five minutes, but a video of a guy uh, millennial, I'm a millennial, so I can say that, uh, who, um, he, he, you know, a lot of millennials do this kind of stuff, where they'll do like 30 days of doing this, you know, 30 days of doing this, and they'll make a YouTube video about it. There's a ton of them. So there's a guy who's like 30 days of meditating for one hour a day. Now, he's not talking about biblical meditation, Psalm 1. He was talking about like sitting around, you know, getting crossing your legs and, you know, being quiet. He talks about how distracted he was and all these things and the experience. I just wanted to watch it to see, like, what, what did the world think about meditation? And he talked about it. And he basically said, I'm not going to keep continue doing it. <laughs> it's too hard. Uh, here, here's the difference between biblical meditation and the world's view of meditation. The world's view of meditation is uh, to empty your mind and to look within. To look within and to empty your mind. It's also a very silent activity. The goal is to be quiet, to get in the zone. This guy talked about like a fly, kept coming to his room, and it like just bothered him so much. He was trying to like meditate in the, you know, pagan way, and it's like, and uh, he's like, ah, I can't stop thinking about that fly. And here's what's different though about biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is not quiet at all. It's noisy. Because the idea is muttering. It's actually verbally speaking out the word of God and contemplating it. That's the, the word itself has that sense of, you know, like you're kind of like talking to yourself and muttering and, and talking out the scriptures. 
It's actually a good practice uh, if you're struggling reading the Bible to actually read out loud to yourself the Bible. Uh, sometimes if I'm like just not feeling it, I'll do that. I'll just start reading out loud to myself and it helps me to focus so much more. There's a sense of that. But not only is biblical meditation not quiet, but vocal, but it's also not about empty your mind, but filling your mind. It's about filling your mind with truth. And it's not about looking within yourself. It's looking outside of yourself. And so it's completely opposite from the way the world perceives of meditation. So we look into the word outside of ourselves. We talk it out to ourselves, thinking about it, filling our minds with the truth. It involves reading, thinking, praying, remembering, and filling our minds. It's unlikely that many had the average person had a, a copy of the scriptures. And so it's hard to see how this passage could be obeyed apart from memorization of the scriptures. That's kind of the implication here. Like the average Jew doing this and obeying this chapter and following this lifestyle would have had to have had gobs of scripture memorized to mutter it throughout their day. And it's an encouragement to us to be having the scriptures memorized as well in our own lives. We would just know it so we could think about it and, uh, and have it pass through our minds. What you think about most shapes your desires and behavior most. Your mind needs to be defended more than anything. Whatever shapes your thinking will shape your life. And hence why he avoids the advice and counsel of the wicked, and yet he is committed to the law of the Lord. And when does this meditation take place? Do you wake up real early and, you know, and get it done there? Or does he wait real late? Actually, it says day and night, which doesn't mean he wakes up and does it, you know, for 10 minutes in the morning and what, right before bed, he t- 10 minutes. It is actually a, a, a way of speaking like the heavens and the earth, right? It means everything in between as well. It's a way of capturing two extremes and bringing everything in between. Day and night is like saying all the time. All the time we're, we're, we're trying to think about our actions and our lives through a biblical lens and live accordingly. Just this constant way of feeding our souls on the scriptures. Joshua 1.8 uh, which is actually, interestingly enough, the beginning of the prophet section in the Old Testament. So the Psalms are, Psalm 1 is the beginning of the writing section. She has the, the, the law, the Torah, the first five books. That's the first section. Then you have the, the prophets and then the writings. Joshua actually begins the prophets, and he begins in Joshua 1, 8, 9 about this person who meditates. It's called to meditate on the word of God day and night. It's virtually the same command, constantly putting the scriptures before, and then the Psalms begin the same way, the writings. And what should be your expectation when you read the Bible? Does the believer wake up each morning, open their Bible, read a few words one time, and begin to soar with delight? Sometimes. I've had that experience. But it's not always the norm. There are times when we're drowsy, we're tired. I mean, I'm not saying like there's a, a law you have to read the Bible first time you wake up. Maybe you need to like, you know, actually wake up, you know. <laughs> I had a, a professor of mine who said, you know, uh, he was talking to us and you know, kind of be, 
beating us up as seminary students and telling us, you know, he's like, you guys are struggling to pray. You're falling asleep praying. He's like, you know, just get out in your garage and get on your knees. It's really uncomfortable on your hard cement, on your knees. It'll be hard to fall asleep if you're out there. You just pray out there. <laughs> and so, uh, but, but what is your expectation? It may not always be that you constantly are like, whoa, I just can't believe I saw it. Often it's the consistency of being in the word that, that leads to breakthroughs in the word. It's just reading gobs of scripture regularly in our lives, uh, daily in our lives. It is, let me say this, it is not an abnormal thing or an ag- abnormal expectation that a Christian would read the Bible every day. Because this is, this is like the, uh, it doesn't say that in as many words, but that's the implication. Day and night, he's just constantly thinking about the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, putting it before his mind. This will transform our lives. This is the blessed life. Part of the challenge I think we have in Bible reading and breakthroughs is not spending enough time. It, it, we don't know what we're reading. We don't know the context because we just haven't put ourselves in the Word enough. And so it does take time. There are great resources. There are helps. Please talk to us. We'd love to help you if you struggle in that way. And of course, all of us can have times where we struggle. Joel Beakey, I just heard him tell a story uh, about a, a, an elder that he served with. And um, he was about to go on a big trip and his elder called him up and said, I, I need to meet with you. I, I'm in desperate, I'm in a desperate spiritual condition. I, I, I'm just, I can't pray. I can't read the Bible. I, I, I'm just so low. Uh, I, I can't do anything. And I, I need you to come. And he's like, I'm about to leave, about to board a plane. I can't. He said, like, I can't come. But here's what I want you to do. I'm going to be gone for a week. And I want you to do this. I want you to spend 30 minutes every single day this week. And I want you to break it into three parts. I want you to read the Bible for 10 minutes. And I want you to, Meditate on the word for 10 minutes, thinking about what you read intentionally. And I want you to pray what, about what you just read about for 10 minutes. Every single day, focused for the time that I'm gone. And then we'll meet when I get back. And the man said, I can't. I can't do it. I, I'm, that's where I am. I'm so low. It would be a, an abomination for me to do that. And Joel Vicky said, it would be a double abomination if you didn't. <laughs> You need to do this. And so he, he left, and, and the man did it. And when he got back to his office after the trip, there was a note from his assistant that said, you know, elder so-and-so no longer needs to see you. All is well. <laughs> and his point was, yeah, you, you've been out of the word. You, you, you're, you're languishing, and you need an intentional time back in God's word to be fed again. And it's like our desire lacks for the word. And what would bring the desire back for the word? The word. <laughs> it's like, how, how crazy. So, so we go, I don't really feel like it. So I guess I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't start. It's like, no, how are you going to get back in the desire for the word? Apart from the word. It is the God of the word who instills in us a love for the word. And you don't learn about the God of the word without reading the word. Did that all make sense? <laughs> I hope so. Uh, here's this man delighting in the word of God, regularly dwelling upon it. This is what distinguishes these two people in the psalm. We can all grow in this way, no doubt. Here's the delight and the preoccupation of the blessed man. Let's notice, secondly, the picture of the happy person, the blessed person, and it's stability. Stability. Verse 3 and 4 give us a picture of a fruitful tree and then a fruitless chaff. 
We see another way that the righteous person is saturated in God's word by drawing from the word. Verse 3 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. It's pictures of nourishment. Tree planted, nourished by these waters. It's picturing the godly person nourished by the word of God, drawing from it. Growing up, we used to like to go out in the woods and find dead trees or what looked like dead trees and push them over. You'd get like three or four guys and we'd go back and forth and pushing this thing. And then you could eventually just push the thing over and it would like fall. You didn't even need a tool. And it would just, it was so fun and gratifying. But here's a, here's a tree that is not able to, to do that. Yeah, it's just fun to push trees over, you know, <laughs> as young guys. <laughs> so, uh, and, and here's a tree that you can't push over. It is planted Here's what Psalm 92, 12 and 14 says. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of Yahweh. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Even in the old age, full of sap and green. They describe the Puritans as oaks. These these men of God and women of God were like oaks, righteous and firmly planted on the word of God and nourished. Jeremiah 17 uses virtually the same image, certainly drawing from what Psalm 1 is saying and picking up on it. It's just a proof that the writers of Scripture meditated themselves on Scripture. And here's Jeremiah meditating on Psalm 1, and here's what he says. Psalm, or Jeremiah 17, 8. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So here's the picture of a, a tree in a dry climate. Everyone, whether you're in a good place or not, connected to water or not, faces the same external circumstances. The same heat comes upon both. One is flourishing because of a, an ex, a, a, a hidden root. The other is languishing because of no root. It tells us that this person will be characterized in four ways. They will have stability. It says they'll be planted by streams of water. Now, I don't know if you know this agriculturally, but trees do not plant themselves. <laughs> I know this. Ashley bought me a couple of trees, bought herself some trees for me to plant. <laughs> and uh, I had to dig and, and you know, put in some dirt and, you know, it's hard, you know, don't feel too bad for me, but, uh, but they don't plant themselves. Here's a great picture. This is a tree that has been planted. I think it's a great picture of God's sovereign, I'll give you a big word here, monergistic work of salvation where he, one person acting, monergistic, God works to transplant us, to cause us to have life. He plants us. We don't plant ourselves. He plants us. And it's the same word that causes new life, that then nourishes that life. James 1.18 says, he, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's regeneration language. He saved us by the word. And guess what? Paul says, Romans 12.2, that we're renewed in our minds by the scriptures. We're renewed by the scriptures, the renewing of our minds. And so we're regenerated by the word, we're renewed by the word. And notice also that the source that nourishes this person comes from outside of themselves, not inside themselves. And this is, once again, an, 
illustration of the contrariness of the advice of the world and the, and the advice of Scripture. The world would say in times of trouble, times of drought, look in. Look within yourself. Find the strength within. Spend some time alone and just think about who you are. What is your identity? Who do you want to be? You know, it's like, whereas the scriptures would say in trouble, in times of drought, you look outside of yourself. You, you don't look in. You look outside of yourself. You're going to go more hopeless if you look within. You look outside to the source. And so that's the idea. This, this tree has an external source from itself that it draws from to remain healthy. And there's a stability that then comes. There's not only stability, but there's productivity. It says that it yields its fruit in its season. That's an interesting thing to say, in its season. And that's what fruit trees do. But I think it's an instructive verse. You may not immediately see the fruit in a situation that you are hoping for, looking for. After your, I mean, just take after your devotions, you read the Bible and you're like, all right, where is it? Where's the fruit? But it is as you spend your time in the Word over time, it's like in just the right time, in just the right circumstance, God produces fruit. And you're like, where did that come from? This trial, and boom, here's some truth that sustains you. Or you're in a situation to speak the truth, and, and boom, here it comes out of your mouth. And how did I even say that? And, and it's because it, you bear fruit in your proper season. God is supplying you with what's needed as, as the word has been nourishing you, and you don't exactly know how and when it's going to bear its fruit, but in that right time, the Spirit takes the word that's, that's nourished you and it bears some fruit, and it's evident. It comes at the proper time, just when you need it productivity. There's also a durability in this tree. It says its leaf does not wither. Its leaf does not wither. It's a unique tree, kind of evergreen. It doesn't die in winter. It loses its fruit. It's durable. The heat comes, might scorch and dry up another tree, but not this one, because there's this hidden source sustaining it. It does not wither. And then there's a prosperity in all that he does, he prospers. He prospers. Now, prosperity preachers, I imagine, would love this verse, you know, and say like, oh, you know, send me your money and you will prosper, you know. <laughs> but that's not the idea here. Um, the Bible yet, though, does talk about prosperity, but what does it mean by prospering? The idea is more like success. You will succeed. And the question is, succeed at what? This, this word for prosper is used of weapons prospering. Hmm. It's used of trees prospering. That's interesting. It's used of the word of God prospering. And so the idea then is it's, it's like succeeding for the purpose that it was made for. If a weapon prospers, what do you think it does? Kills someone, right? It's meant to kill. So it prospers. It succeeds. It, if a tree prospers, well, it produces what it was intended to. If the word of God succeeds, then God has purposes for it, and it goes out and accomplishes those purposes. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall be my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed, prosper, in the thing for which I sent it. So the righteous person, the happy person, the blessed person, fulfills God's intended purpose for him or her because they're rooted in the word. They're nourished in the word. 
So whatever God would call this person to, whatever vocation, whatever season in life, they can succeed and fulfill God's purpose that he would have for them for his glory in that circumstance, whatever it is. We're not all called to the same things, uh, and yet we have the same scriptures that would enable us to succeed in whatever that is in a way that glorifies God. This is like what 2 Timothy uh, 3.17 says, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Complete. Are you fulfilling the purpose for which God created you? The scriptures are the way that we do that. What role is God's word playing in enabling you to live out God's purpose? The reason this person is happy is because they're prospering in the purpose for which God made them. I mean, it's good. It, it, it is right when we are satisfied in doing, knowing we're doing what we are supposed to be doing. And so here is this person satisfied because they're sourced in the scriptures. This is very similar to Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. That sounds like Psalm 1-1. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That sounds like Psalm 1-2. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That sounds like Psalm 1-3. <laughs> Doing what you were meant to do, prospering in it. And so the scriptures are saying the same thing in many places in different ways. So this is the picture of the fruitful tree, the happy person. But there's also a contrasting picture that helps us to understand even more the picture of the blessed. And it's the, the picture of the fruitless chaff. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so. So literally, not so the wicked, but are like chaff the wind drives away. And that's it. That's all he says about the wicked. You're, you get all this like description. It's like lush and you're like, oh, I feel like I'm in the Garden of Eden. And that's likely what the psalmist is trying to get you to do. Take you back to the lushness of the Garden of Eden and the presence of God there. And when you're in the Word, you feel like you're back in Eden, in the Garden, close to God. And then you just have this like quick statement like, the wicked are not so. They're like chaff. They're gone. And it's like, that's all he gets. <laughs> and it's intentional. What, I mean, what really can you say about chaff? There's not that much to say. <laughs> it's like that's what the psalmist is doing. Now, chaff, what are we talking about here? It's the useless husks of, of the grain that were light enough to be blown away in the process of winnowing as they would throw the grain up and uh, the, the heavier part would drop and then the chaff would get blown away by the wind. And it became uh, an image of Judgment. Jesus used this in Matthew 3, verse 12. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here's these two. It's just totally picking up on Psalm 1 and this idea of these two, two ways. They're lacking in substance and significance. I used to roast my own coffee beans and... Uh, probably another thing a millennial does. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and so you, you roast these, and I, I did it the cheap way. I got a air, uh, popcorn air popper, and you would just, you could put it a little bit in, and it would like blow it in a circle, and, 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 and as it heated up, it would, it would, there was chaff that came off. The, the little uh, uh, covering of the, of the bean would, would fly off, 
And it was like a big fire hazard. So like if you did it in the wrong place, it, you know, these things could, were really hot and they're flying off and they could catch on fire and, you know, start it. So you got to be careful where you do it. But that's the idea. And they would just, you could just blow them and whew, they would just blow away. That's this idea of this chaff that he's talking about. Just another image of this. It's just weightless, worthless, lacking in substance and significance. And how helpful this puts in perspective what we're so prone to do when it comes to looking at the world. See, Psalm 73 is a great psalm. It gives us Asaph's struggle as he looks out at the world and he sees people who are, who are famous, who are wealthy, who are healthy, who are successful in the world's eyes. And he's going, wait a minute. They're so, seem so satisfied, have no thought of God, and look at how they prosper. I mean, how does this work? Prospering, talk about prospering, they're prospering. They don't care at all about the word of God. What's going on? And then he says he gets clarity at the end when he says, then I came into the throne room of God and I saw their end. I mean, yep, behind the apparent success of any musician or actor or actress or, or, or athlete or business person, and, and it's not to say that any of those couldn't be Christians. Of course they're Christians and all those, but, but to those who deny God and, and have pride like around their neck, like the psalmist says, we can be tempted to envy them and their success. And yet, the psalmist, and Psalm 73 is another great place, but here the psalmist says it very tersely. They're like chaff. They're going to be driven away. That's the perspective you must have. To borrow a sermon title from Jonathan Edwards, kind of shocking, he says, wicked men, useful in their destruction only. Wow. Wicked men, useful in their destruction only. What does he mean? He means they will give glory to God in his justice manifested by their judgment. This is the end of the wicked. Chaff, weightless, worthless. Daniel 2, 35 describes all the kingdoms opposed to God being smashed by the rock of Christ and being obliterated and blown away like chaff. Even the kingdoms, these mighty kingdoms of our, of our world are going to come to chaff and Christ's kingdom will be the one established. This is the picture of the happy person, and by contrast, the wicked. And finally, then we see the portion of the happy person, the portion of the happy person, which is salvation. Preoccupation is scripture. Picture is stability. And here the portion of the blessed person is salvation. This is where the two paths will lead. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, or even rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's the portion of the wicked. No justification. They stand on their own merits. They stand on their own works. And therefore, they have no justification. They won't rise in the judgment. They won't stand in the judgment. Because they stand in their own works, which are worthless. The works, the good works of the wicked are like chaff. Blown away. They thought it was going to be so stable, so firm. It was going to balance out that scale. Their good was going to outweigh, weigh it down. It's like, you put the good works, the good works, and it's like, chaff. The day of judgment comes and it's gone. It's blown away. And it's the amazement that none of those things did anything to commend yourself to God. There's also no fellowship or no communion. He doesn't, they don't, uh, 
They're not in the congregation of the righteous. They're not associated with the righteous. And there's no hope for them because the way of the wicked will perish. But the portion of the righteous is contrasted. They are in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. And this is so sweet because we might think, you know, oh, I know the Lord and so I'm safe. But here it says, the Lord knows you. Lord knows you. And Paul said the same thing. He said, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Lord knows those who are his. Jesus said the same thing, which he's drawing on Psalm 1 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I didn't know you. Here is the saving portion of the righteous. They are known by God now in this life and into eternity. And how is a person in the Old Testament righteous? How are they justified? The same way they are in the New Testament, by faith in the Messiah. This is what Abraham did. He had faith in God's promise of the Messiah, Genesis 15, 6, and God counted it to him as righteousness. The same for us. We look outside of ourselves for a righteousness that's alien to us. It's, so, so we look outside of ourselves to the word of God to nourish us. We also look outside of ourselves for righteousness. We don't look inside for righteousness. We look outside in the person of Christ. These are those who are in a right relationship with God, and they will evidence itself in this way. Now, we read of the blessed man, and we certainly want to be the men and women who are blessed and happy, and we see these three descriptions here of them. And yet, it can't, we cannot help but think, especially in the connection to Psalm 2 that's going to introduce to us the Messiah, that the ultimate blessed man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessed man who, who knew the law of God, who meditated on it, who rejected the way of the wicked, and who rejoiced in the way of the Lord, who was sustained at all times by the scriptures, who was the most stable person ever, who was known by and knew the Lord. What's really interesting is in Deuteronomy 17, just like there were three things that the righteous person, the, the blessed person was supposed to avoid in Psalm 1-1, and there's one thing the, the blessed person was supposed to do, so in Deuteronomy 17, when they were talking about, Moses was talking about the king that was to be over Israel, when you have a king in the future, they are to avoid three things. And they are to pursue one thing. I want you to listen to this passage in Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 15. It says, You may indeed set a king over you, whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself, number one, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again, he shall, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, number two, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold, number three. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. 
approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Wow. Here is what the king of Israel was supposed to do. Guess what king actually did it? The king of kings. He is the Psalm 1 man, rejecting these three things and pursuing this one thing, the word of God, the delight in the word, always seeking to do the will of the Father. This is my food. And so it's because of this righteous one, this blessed one, that when we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we speak about the Messiah. We speak about Psalm 1, one man, Jesus Christ, and we say, I need to be in him. I need his righteousness for mine. And then I can enjoy him and enjoy the delight of knowing God through Jesus Christ. So have you entered the narrow gate? Maybe you've studied the narrow gate in church. Maybe you've watched others enter the narrow gate. Maybe you've come right up to the narrow gate. But have you entered the narrow gate by faith? There are only two kinds of people, two paths, and two destinies. Which one are you on? In Pilgrim's Progress, the very beginning, you don't read long before Pilgrim has come to see his need for salvation. He's read in a book, and he's been told of his need, and he is trying to convince his wife and his children, and they won't have it. They think I'm a fool until he has to go to the celestial city. And so he begins to leave as they mock him, and he just puts his fingers in his ears to block out the advice of the world. And he just simply says, eternal life, eternal life, as he runs away from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And may it be for us as well who have come to know him that we would continue to run hard after the Lord in the scriptures because this is eternal life, that they may know you, the true God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. What a treat it is for us to study on our own, corporately. We thank you for the nourishment. We thank you for the regenerating work of the word, for the renewing work of the word. May we be people of the book. May we be people devoted to the scriptures. Lord, help us to read your word regularly. And Lord, would your spirit work in us to illumine our hearts that we might benefit from it and truly know you. We want to know you, God. We want to enjoy more of you, God. We don't want to just go through the motions of obedience. We want to do it with joy. And the only way we know is by knowing more of you, to have our view of you enlarge and greater so that we are so captivated by you that we just want more and more and more. And so we pray you would do that, Lord. Sustain us in all seasons of life. There are seasons coming in our lives we know not yet of where we will need that nourishment of the word. And so nourish us now in light of those days to sustain us that we might bear fruit in those days, Lord, because your word has dwelt in us. We ask these things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.